This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you're listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5, episode 100, The Ragged Edge. This is it. I feel the- like we should pop the champagne or something. Yeah, you know? we hit the century mark. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of frightening that we've actually been doing this podcast for 100 episodes. And I know that, you know, it's just a number. But yeah, we've been it's doing this. It's a big for, number. It's a big number. And we really do appreciate everybody who's been listening, whether you've been dipping in and out for favorite episodes or if you've been listening to each one along the way. We're very grateful for your listenership. Um, the Ragged Edge is an episode of Babylon 5, so we <laughs> haven't really planned anything super spectacular to commemorate the 100th episode. Maybe we'll do something neat for the 200th. Wait. <laughs> um, wah, wah. Yeah. That's, a, that's the thing you're, about you're, serial- you're, you're asking a lot about JMS <laughs> <laughs> for that one. That's the thing about serialized television. You know, we can't, I don't. I don't feel like we should do anything extra special for this because this is just, you know, a middle of the season episode. So we should be doing a middle of the season episode podcast. There right. So I think what we should do then for episode 200 is uh, once we're done with the run of uh, Babylon 5 and its spinoffs, we start over and do it start a- again. <laughs> what, in, in <laughs> Spanish this time? Um, <laughs> Muy difícil. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness. We are midway through season five here. This is actually the halfway point of the thing. And before we get into the big stuff, uh, the big, you know, the episode synopsis and all the other good stuff, I did want to ask one tiny little question. Remember Byron? (laughs) Who? (laughs) Exactly. It is an abrupt shift. Mm -hmm. It is. It's... It's something of a it, it's something of a breath of fresh air, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's that different from other uh, switches between episodes. We've had plenty of times where something you know kind of momentous happens, and then they don't really refer to it in the next episode because stuff is always moving on Babylon Five. Things are happening fast. So, so while while yes, I can absolutely laugh at the joke and be like, yeah, remember Byron? That was such a big deal, you know, saying it over and over again. And then here we just don't. But at the same time, I feel like that's that's just the the nature of the beast with Babylon Five. So I don't have a problem with it. I I do think it's amusing though. Yeah, the focus has shifted. Uh, simple and put, we've had undercurrents uh, for our current story. That is the focus of the Ragged Edge. Dripped in uh, the first half of season five so far. Uh, now that an arc has closed, we are shifting to another arc. Um, and like Erica said, Babylon 5 has done this before, where something that happened that you feel like there's going to be follow up. And just because it doesn't happen immediately in the next episode doesn't mean we're not going to get it at some point. We'll That's see. true. I think there's the one the one thing that um the one analogy that I can think of to what happened in this season is what happened in the first season. We had a consistent story arc in the first season of, or an undertone anyway, of raiders, the generic pirates who were causing all kinds of trouble. They were the big bad in the series premiere Midnight on the Firing Line. And then we get all the way up to Signs and Portents. 
and they're pretty much done for the most part for the rest of the series. Uh, they did start creeping back up in this season. Uh, but similarly, uh, we had telepaths just about every episode uh, for the first 10 episodes of uh, season five. And that plot thread just got cut. And this episode feels very different to me as a result. A breath of fresh air for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it, it's it's a big shift. Um, you know, uh, not only is, you know, Byron no longer there, uh, Lita is not present. Lockley is not present. So, like, you know, the major players in that storyline are, you know, off doing something else now um, while we shift over to Sheridan and Delenn and the thing that has been percolating in the background. That's true. And it's also it's also basically our, our core cast, you know, our whole core cast, pretty much the ones that are left. In mm-hmm. one place. It's a Sheridan story. Delenn's got some good moments. It's Franklin's got some good moments. It's a big Garibaldi story. There's a lot of Londo. There's a lot of Jakar. It's, it feels like core Babylon 5. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then it ends with somebody saying that he's going to be leaving. But, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Let's do the series recap. Uh, if you are tuning in for our 100th episode spectacular... Um, and just just sort of dropping in. Uh, here's the reset of everything that happened in the previous 99 episodes. Space Station Babylon 5 is the seat of a new but fragile interstellar alliance. The many planetary governments don't trust each other much, but they see the alliance as a chance to protect and enrich themselves from each other. War hero John Sheridan is president, leading the alliance with a group of former ambassadors that was once at each other's throats. There are two threats to the Alliance, however, apparently coming from the Centauri Republic, unbeknownst to everyone, including its Prime Minister, Londo Malari. The Centauri are secretly attacking interstellar shipping throughout the Alliance, and a mysterious alien force is on the Centauri homeworld, and apparently controlling the region. Sheridan has his hands full, but he doesn't know the Centauri are involved, his director of covert intelligence, Michael Garibaldi, may be just the man to figure it out and solve the problem, but he's got his own monkey on his back. He's a survivor of having his mind manipulated by Earth's number one telepath enforcer, Bester. And he's just learned that he's telepathically blocked from revealing the truth or fighting back. That knowledge has driven Garibaldi, an alcoholic, into a relapse. Which brings us to the Ragged Edge. Interstellar Alliance members have had enough. If the Alliance can't protect their shipping lanes, what good is it for? Sheridan and Delenn are forced to agree. They need a break. Fortunately, a pilot manages to escape a raid and may have survived in the Drazi Freehold. Garibaldi, who's already overslept and missed one meeting after a bender, volunteers to use his connections to get the witness out. Garibaldi's contact offers him a drink while they wait to make the rendezvous which means Garibaldi's off his game. He doesn't notice when his contact is attacked outside his hotel room, and it's too late to save the pilot. He barely gets out alive, with only a button from one of his assailants to show for it. Good news! Londo recognizes it as ceremonial Centauri attire. Awkward news! He came late into the meeting and didn't know why Garibaldi had it, and the others clam up immediately. So now only Londo is out of the loop of what the rest of us in the audience knew all along, that one of two factions on Centauri Prime is behind the attacks, and an alien force on Centauri Prime is protecting Londo. 
Meanwhile, in Citizen Jakar's month-long absence, the Narn leadership decided it simply wouldn't do if he died before his book about what he learned during the Centauri occupation in Shadow War was published. So they sent Jakar's old friend and advisor Talon to steal it and publish it. It's a bestseller. Jakar's an instant religious icon. And Stephen Franklin's been offered a plum promotion to take over xenobiological research on Earth at the end of the year. He's not leaving immediately, but he's leaving. And that was the ragged edge. You know, I like this title quite a bit. It suggests that things are starting to fray. Things are potentially going to be torn apart. The alliance is shaky at the beginning. Garibaldi is shaky throughout. And then in the end, you've got... uh, one of your uh, regulars saying that I'm shipping out. And that sort of reminds you that this series, the entire series of Babylon 5, is coming close to an end. Lasai. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, was, a, uh, that was a very telling point, um, having Stephen. I had forgotten that it happened this early that he'd made his decision uh, to move on at the end of the year. Um, But, you know, after, of course, you know, Ivanova has already left. Some of the characters have died off. Lanier has taken off for the Rangers. And, you know, now we have, you know, as, as has been pointed out, as was pointed out in the show itself, you know, one of the characters who has been there almost from the beginning, only Garibaldi has been there longer and he's about to go. Um, that and that scene uh, where he tells Sheridan really, really grabbed me, um, not only with Franklin, you know, explaining his reasoning and, you know, laying it all out uh, very logically, as is within his character. But Boxleitner's reactions, mm-hmm. you know, as the other half of that of that conversation, just as much as when he delivered his lines, uh, really, really spoke to me as someone who is not only losing a valuable asset, but a very cherished friend is going to be, you know, a, a galaxy away. Yeah. And the uh, tying it into the title, The Ragged Edge, you can kind of at that moment too recognize just how frayed uh, Sheridan's nerves are, because mm-hmm. this is just one more thing on top of the crap that he is already dealing with. And, you know, by the end of the scene, you can see how happy he is for his friend. But at the same time, you know, even after he thaws a little bit after, you know, he, he's got quite the frown and the scowl mm-hmm. on his face earlier on, even yeah. by the end when he so- softened up a little bit, he just he does a great balance of showing that he's pleased for his friend. You know, that's one hell of a promotion. But at the same time, just like you can tell, he's very, very dejected. And and yeah, and, and on the other side, Richard Biggs just did a, a great job of, you know, like I, I have I have had to quit jobs before. Um, and, you know, when quitting talking, you know, while I was ready to leave the job, maybe I wasn't ready to leave the people. And I like I was taken like right back to that same feeling that I had, you know, walking into that room and explaining it's time for me to move on. This is no longer the place that I'm supposed to be. And yeah, he he played it exactly right. That is exactly how I have I have felt. And it was really evocative. Yeah, there's something at the time of recording this. uh, The three of us have just come back from the Gallifrey One convention in Los Angeles, the big Doctor Who convention where showrunner Stephen Moffat was there. And at one of the Q&A panels, uh, somebody observed that Peter Capaldi in his last scene as the Doctor appeared to be 
as much saying goodbye to the role and, you know, seemed to be personally emotional about it. And Moffat said, uh, if I'm paraphrasing it correctly, you realize he's an actor, don't you? He was fine that day. I couldn't tell how thick the meta was at the <laughs> recording of this episode in the middle of the season. They know it's the last season. I think Box Leitner and uh, Jerry Doyle may have been pushing, come on, give us another season. But I, th- you know, how much of this was Box Leitner and Franklin, uh, Box Leitner and Biggs feeling the emotion of this being the last year of the show? And how much of it was them simply, you know, acting? Hard to say. Yeah. So yeah. that's the threadlet. Uh, there are two mm-hmm. big threads in this episode. So let's go to uh, plot A, which is Garibaldi and the Drazi. Uh, so Garibaldi has started drinking again. Mm-hmm. And he's oversleeping right from the bat. He seems to have it together in the meeting uh, with the – in the meeting with – the Babylon, he seems to have it together in the meeting with the Interstellar Alliance Brain Trust. And yet, as the episode goes on, he's just barely off his game, and there are consequences for it. And I was wondering what the two of you felt as you were watching Garibaldi at work and struggling to struggling to stay ahead. I thought it was overall very well done i think there were enough very blatant's not the right word but uh clear signals to the audience of what was happening uh i've liked very much the fact that um the two times that somebody mentions it to garibaldi or you know says hey what's going on it's two of the people that know him best first you know zach wakes him up and zach is like okay this isn't like you you know are you you're sick what you know maybe you should take it easy and then after he um, logically says, this is why uh, Franklin should not go with me to the Drazi homeworld, you know, Franklin goes back to him and says, look, you know, are we good? Because, you know, this isn't like you. Um, so I liked that part of laying, the, you know, it lays the foundation for, you know, later on, if things continue to spiral out of control, we will see. Um, the foundation has been laid for a couple of people to realize what's going on. Um, I also like the fact that, uh, you know, when Garibaldi meets with his um, with his contact, that uh, the contact starts pouring the drink without even thinking. And Garibaldi's first instinct is to, you know, say no. So for a second there, he, you know, he almost he almost does the right thing. But then, you know, whether it's, you know, he's in the middle of a relapse and this is an old buddy of his. He doesn't want to get into explaining why not. Who knows? But he takes the drink and the mess ensues yeah i i actually found it very painful to watch um i i've i've been sort of in like uh in dr franklin's shoes like you know watched watched a friend sort of you know fall back down that slope and had them dodge my calls and and, you know just uh, play the avoidance game and i was just like oh this is this is this is a rough thing to watch because it is so good because it is is done so well. Um, it's it's clear that JMS understands uh, the way addiction can can play out and and yeah, I felt like this was very true to life and hard to watch because I really like Garibaldi as a character and it's hard to watch somebody that you care about you know sliding 
back into whatever kind of trouble it is that they keep sliding into. So it was it was rough watching that. And also, I just felt like the uh, there was <laughs> there was one moment, however, where I felt like it was a little ham fisted and a little bit heavy handed in terms of writing. And that was when Garibaldi is reporting back. He's back on, on Babylon 5 and it's before Londo has walked in. And he's just explaining how it went. And he says that his uh, his contact got jumped um, and, and killed right outside of his room. I just thought it was very weird for Sheridan to say, huh, I'm surprised you didn't hear it or notice. Like, A, what does Sheridan know about the, the shape and the layout of any drowsy hotel room or like what the material's made out of? And B, why would you even expect somebody to hear it if, if something happens right outside of your hotel room? And there was nothing that Garibaldi said to indicate that he didn't. Like, it, it, you know, jumping somebody and killing them can be an instantaneous action. So even if he heard it, why would he have been able to help? So I just... I, I felt like that was that was the one misstep in what was otherwise a very very elegantly and and well written um, plot line there in terms of Garibaldi's drinking. I think I agree. I think that had Garibaldi not taken the drinks, that he possibly wouldn't have gone to sleep, and he would have been. I think his his normal mo would have been to stay awake and stay alert throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, but in which uh, case he I still don't think he would have been able to save his friend. Right. Yeah, right. he probably would have heard it and he probably would have gone outside. Maybe he would have caught the, the cop that did it, but or whoever it was. Yeah. Yeah. He might have been able to save the pilot, but, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we, yeah. The, the painful thing for me here is that these are all the mistakes that he makes, uh, the the sleeping in, the missing the alarm at the beginning of the episode, the um, missing the missing his friend getting attacked, failing to get to the the pilot, the witness in time. All of these things are individual mistakes that anybody would could make, or not even mistakes. You know, just failures of timing you know things like that but they all can be traced back to his uh, relapse and that's just really painful to watch from a person you know just sort of a i've got an overactive uh, guilt gland and it was (laughs) sort of it it was really pumping uh when i was uh watching garibaldi go through all of this um Mm -hmm. and just imagining how i'd feel afterward and in the end of the episode, he's got another bottle, and that's just mm-hmm. a that's just a nasty, nasty cycle to be caught in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he makes it when when he makes it down to the planet. You know, JMS on the Lurker's Guide is quoted as uh, talking about uh, doing a lot more uh, video compositing work, and this was kind of for. 1990s technology this was kind of a lush episode when it comes to cgi and compositing uh they there's almost there's almost an excessively dramatic uh background music reveal when he goes out on his balcony but it <laughs> looks really actually good it's a mm-hmm. it's a very technically adept episode um directed by producer john copeland mm-hmm yeah, it it was neat. Uh, and Stephen also pointed out that he he just oh, Stephen always gets excited anytime they go any place that's not Babylon Five, right? So he was thrilled to see the Drazi homeworld and like a, a a new 
new planet. And I, I appreciated the way that it was that it was sort of realized on screen that, you know, even the light of the sun is not the same color because, of course, not all stars give off the same color. So the the very air outside had sort of like a yellowish tint to it. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were also like, you know, writing details about how the streets were so close together and, you know, all that kind of stuff that is cultural that just it was mm-hmm. it was it was a really cool experience. And I have forgotten so much about so many episodes of this show, especially in season five. And for some reason, I really remembered this one and Garibaldi's trip to this planet. And I think it's because it's 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 just a, a different standout experience, something that's different from what we get. So I was as soon as I kind of realized that's what was happening, I was like, oh, right, this. Yeah, this is cool. Yeah, uh, I agree. They They did a very good job with the set. Uh, making the rooms feel, you know, different, kind of alien. Um, you know, the, as you said, the streets and, you know, and JMS still world building in the fifth se- in, in the fifth season. You know, we've got a, a planet we haven't visited before, so we're going to talk a little bit about it. Um, and, you know, things like, you know, Chip actually, like, you know, pointed out the, the, the little sign in the Drazi language, the hotel policies posted next to the door, you know, things like that. Just um, really solid attention to detail, uh, which only made me wince harder um, the couple of times that Garibaldi was fighting the Drazi and the balcony wall wobbled. <laughs> yeah. <It's> like, <laughs> I actually do? missed that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Two or three times that they were, you know against leaning against it or bumping against it you'd see it wobble mm-hmm. oh. yeah steven and i both had a little bit of a giggle yeah. over that yeah is it possible <laughs> that babylon 5 had more wobbly sets than doctor who i think it no. is possible no it is not <laughs> <laughs> i've been watching doctor who from the beginning it is certainly not <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one more thing I want to say about this segment um, before we go on uh, is I really and of course I failed to look up his name like an idiot, but um, I really liked the actor playing uh, Garibaldi's friend. Uh, yeah, I don't know I, the actor's name, but the character's name was Tafik. Tafik. I thought the actor did a really, really good job with this particular performance. He had a lot of exposition to get through, and between the lines he was given and whatever direction, he made it interesting. And I, for the life of me, I have to think that this was an acting choice, um, given the gentleman's ethnicity. Um, I don't see JMS writing the tack, 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 tack. That's a verbal tick in a lot of Arabic cultures for gathering for getting attention or telling somebody to wait and that just jumped out at me this time around as something that was really neat yeah i thought he was he was awesome i mean you know we've we've talked multiple times about how guest casting on babylon 5 can either be super awesome or really cringeworthy super and this not. was yeah <laughs> i think this was this was definitely in the super awesome like i i felt the relationship and the connection between those two right. characters it seemed and it was and it was really well balanced uh, in terms of you know yes these are people who like each other and who are friends but who haven't seen each other for a long time so you, you know you got you got both and i thought that was uh that was really well played yeah he gets a line that in other actors' hands, when he's talking about the narrowness of the streets and comparing mm-hmm. it to the tradition of which side you men and women button earth clothing on, you know, under other hands, you know, think about Wade uh, in the <laughs> telepath stuff, you know, yeah. think about him delivering those same lines. No. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it doesn't go well. It does not go well for uh, poor for poor uh, Mr. Garibaldi, and he comes back to Babylon Five with his tail tucked between his legs. Uh, you know, he is physically brutalized during this episode. Some great work with uh, the fight choreography and little bu- blood pellets and things like that. You know, you can see Garibaldi getting more and more messed up at, with every punch that he takes. Uh, so some great work by the makeup artists. And then you're back in that room and it's Sheridan and Delin and Jakar and Garibaldi. And they've got no, I, you know, they, they've got no idea where to go next. They, they've taken a loss here. Londo saunters in and, happens to notice the button that Garibaldi's holding before they tell him what they've been talking about. And that is one of the most deft moments in Babylon 5 scripting and acting and directing when when Londo just asks, where did you get that? And Garibaldi, he's not lost all of his uh, skills by a long shot. He just clams up and says, nope, just saw it on the Zocalo. Yeah, yep. that was so like just heart stopping. Like, I mean, just the the scene started so. I, I mean, I was pretty emotional just at the beginning of it because thinking, man, like they really needed something. And well, I said I remembered this episode. I didn't really remember how it ended or exactly how it went. So we get to the end, and I'm like, oh, nothing is solved. Nothing is figured out. I, I am I am bereft, just like these characters. And then. We move on and I just catch my breath when when Londo recognizes what that is. And it's something to do with Centauri Prime. And I'm just like, (gasps) it was, yeah, it was kind of an emotional roller coaster. It was it was done very well. Yeah, uh, I agree. And the way that basically everybody immediately, you know, without having to say a word, everybody is on the same page. Mm -hmm. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how much Londo knows what's going on. We have to, you know, cover this up. Uh, and they all manage it. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an immediate conspiracy to lie to Londo. Mm-hmm. They discuss yep. the, they discuss, they check in with each other in private quarters afterward to see, you know, did, are we going to continue down this path? But felt real bad for Londo in that moment. Although why would, you know, he wouldn't know, but mm-hmm. he right. is all of a sudden he is back on the outside and he doesn't know it. Which ties in to something um, for, you know, sort of the Jakar half of the thread. It struck me, Londo's beginning rants and monologues as he and Jakar are walking back onto the station. Uh, Londo describing how basically he doesn't feel like he has a home anymore. It's like, you know, he you know was always wanting to go home and leave Babylon 5, and now he's wanting to get away from Centauri Prime, and he doesn't know why. I mean, you know, his instincts are yelling, something's wrong, but he hasn't got an idea. He has no idea what it is. All he can do is complain about, you know, not feeling like he belongs anywhere. Yeah, it's it's sad. <laughs> like, I just, you know, we've watched Londo come so far through so much. And here he is on the outside again. And this time it's not because of anything that he did. It's just because of his connection to sources that we don't know anything about. And I but at the same time, on the other hand, I also I appreciate the reasons that they they made this decision. I mean, in the in the mm-hmm. moment, the decision to 
to freeze him out was just, you know, because they didn't have all of the facts and they didn't know what was going on. Um, but then after they get together, as you said, ship in private quarters, which I appreciated the, the change of venue. That was nice. Um, when when they sit down and discuss it, the reasons for keeping him out and deciding not to tell him anything about it is because Jakar, Jakar of all people is saying, don't tell him because it will get him killed. Like mm-hmm. Jakar, I mean, it, admittedly, yes, Jakar is his bodyguard, but I don't think until this moment I have I really kind of internalized how deep that uh, that sort of protective instinct goes with Jakar, like how much he has forgiven him or at least move towards forgiveness of of londo that he doesn't he he doesn't want him to die and he probably will if he gets wind of this because you know londo is going to be emperor and really ticked off uh, about whatever it is that's happening and yeah if he gets a piece of information i think i think it makes sense for jakar to to assume that he would go off half cocked and probably just get himself killed this episode does one of my favorite things or rather it does the opposite of one of my least favorite things because (laughs) jakar tells everybody else in the room everything he knows Mm -hmm. sheridan delin jakar and who am I missing? Garibaldi. Gar- yeah. Sheridan, mm-hmm. Delin, Jakar, and Garibaldi now know pretty much everything that the audience knows. And yeah, mm-hmm. that is very satisfying because if there's anything I hate in television, even when it happens in sitcoms, it's the, the comedy of errors when the characters don't tell each other everything and the audience knows everything and it's just just mm-hmm. makes me anxious just watching that. Uh, I was even a little bit anxious at the beginning of that scene going, is Jakar going to tell them like what he knows from Centauri Prime? And then he does. And I'm like, hooray! <laughs> Felt much better. And he's and he's real clear about it. I mean, it, Londo was saved through in, through outside intervention. And I don't think I don't think Jakar was in a position to see that. So Londo told him. So, you know, these characters are communicating with each other like adults and they're comparing information and that's just great. But now now they've all got the lay of the land pretty much that there is there are a couple of factions at work on Centauri Prime. One of them is trying to kill Londo, one of them is trying to protect Londo, and the faction that is trying to protect Londo may have help. That's mm-hmm. meaty stuff, and poor Londo knows nothing of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I just at, at the end of it, like I, I can't help just the feeling that I'm left with the most is just just feeling sad for poor Londo. Yeah. Uh, so, parting question on this thread, and then we'll move on to Jakar. Uh, did they do the right thing? They said they did it to protect Londo. Did they do the right thing? I have no idea. I think that whether or not they did the right thing, they did it for the right reasons. And that's good enough for me in terms of, you know, character integrity. And I think based on the current information that they have, yes, they they did the right thing because, you know, they they feel pretty certain that Londo is not involved in whatever this is. But they can't know for sure that they can't know for sure. Now, you know, they need to. They need to, as I said, protect him, uh, protect themselves until they get more information. Yeah. All right, let's shift gears and let's talk about Pope Jakar. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the book of Jakar, we've been seeing this coming for a while now. 
He says, I've only been gone a month, and the, his fellow Narn are bowing and scraping before him, and he's very uncomfortable about this. And then we get Marshall Teague back. Yay. It's been a while since Talon's been seen. It's nice to see a, a, a friendly, recognizable face in this role. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Even if it's under a whole lot of prosthetics. Marshall mm-hmm. Teague, cast your minds back way back to the first season of Babylon 5 when he played an archaeologist's assistant <laughs> and then got encased in a uh, bio suit and started uh, shooting electricity at Jeffrey Sinclair shouting, Ikara! <laughs> Boy, you've missed me doing that, haven't you? Um, <laughs> Talon, as we got to see him in a few episodes in seasons uh, two and three, came across as ever so slightly wiser. Uh, but Marshall Teague just really knocks it out of the park in this one. He seems to be almost a different character, but um, dude dude seems like he's on the way to becoming, like, I don't know, a warrior scholar or something. Yeah, it's like he's got that, you know, wisdom to know that he doesn't know because, you know, mm-hmm. he doesn't he doesn't claim a whole lot of knowledge. I love the fact that he hasn't even read Jakar's book. He, yes, he, I know. He full on admits that. He's like, yeah, that's just, you know, it's not my thing. I haven't read it, but I know you and I trust you and all of these people think it's a big deal. Therefore, you know, I'm I'm supporting you or whatever. It's just that was that was a very nice touch. That felt to me a bit like, you know, JMS, the, uh, like the author speaking. Uh, you know, JMS himself is an atheist, but yet he explores a great deal of the concept of spirituality in the show, in his writings. Uh, he doesn't shy away from it, you know, and, you know, he flat out, you know, through Talon says, you know, it's not that I have to read it myself. I see its effect on you and therefore, you know, you value it. Therefore, I will value your experience. And it's a wonderful outlook. I cannot mm-hmm. imagine that Jakar set this out to be a religious text. And yeah, no, of course not. That's, that, and yet that's the way it's um, sort of being <laughs> taken. I, I don't know. I'm not sure about that because it seems like the other religious texts of, of the Narn, you know, the book of Jaquan and, and book of Jalan and like all of those things are, you know, I, I don't know that there are any, any different just from like the Im- impressions that I've gotten well, from the things that he has quoted. Okay. So, yeah, maybe maybe that was in Jakar's back of his mind, but of course he wasn't finished writing it. I bet oh, he yeah, was almost yeah. certainly not expecting you know anything like this to happen in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So my thought was just that you know I wouldn't be surprised if he had some thoughts as to because I mean think about the the transformation that he has gone through as a person. I feel like he 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 feels that that's a very spiritual thing that he has experienced. So I would be surprised if he. If his book wasn't supposed to be some sort of, you know, it's a guide. It's, it's, he's teaching people the things that he's learned and the things that he has learned are very spiritual in nature. So mm-hmm. I I would suspect that he he did mean it to be, you know, probably not on the same level as the book of Jaquan or, or any of those other ones, but to sort of be in this in a similar vein. And yes, that that, that was not something that that was supposed to be released to the world while he was while he was still alive. Well, his uh, revelation did come in part thanks to Kosh and included uh, I can't remember if it was Jalan, Jalan or Jaquan, you know, appearing to mm-hmm. him in a dream or whatever, but uh, mm-hmm. under the influence of dust, but 
your <laughs> your your point is well said, Erica. Mm-hmm. Um, so he starts teaching <laughs> after and, much encouragement, <laughs> uh, uh, with much encouragement. And before we get to put your face in the book, uh, I did want to check in on you know his reluctance to lead. You know, he's been sort of a moral authority figure all along and he definitely led the narn refugees on babylon 5 after the centauri took over uh, to the point of having uh, a battle or two for leadership um but this is the same guy who said uh, when morton asked him what he wanted as long as narn is protected nothing else matters so uh does Jakar's reluctance to lead ring true to you? I think there's a big difference between leading people just in general in terms of, you know, politics or or that sort of thing and being a spiritual leader. And I can very much understand wanting to do one, um, you know, feeling like, yes, I have the skills to become a leader. So I'm going to lead because I think I'll do a good job and and keep my people safe. And then there's the the whole becoming a spiritual leader, like who anybody who thinks that they have the skills to become a spiritual leader and and, you know, protect people's souls. I feel like that's just on a completely different level. And I I totally buy Jakar being sort of humble about that and not wanting. That's a, a, a much bigger responsibility in some ways. And and I, I believe him wanting to do the one but not the other. Yeah. Um, again, he's um, you know skilled politically uh, to be a member of the Kari, to become an ambassador. So he had the tools for being a political leader uh, and, a, you know, wartime leader. But, you know, the whole point of him writing this book is to figure it out for himself. And he hasn't finished doing that. Of course, he's going to be feeling massively, massively underqualified to lead a whole bunch of people in this quest for answers when he hasn't finished figuring them out. <laughs> JMS takes the moment to deliver a fairly clear broadside against fundamentalism when the uh, when the one Narn says, well, you know, you said the you said the Centauri were not to be trusted and were deep enemies all the way back at the beginning of the book. This is enlightened. It's all got to be true. Right. So Jakar tells him, put the face in the book. And (laughs) Talon sitting back there smugly going first lesson. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a lot of the there, there's a lot of uh, author moralizing here as far as uh, JMS is concerned, but I I really do like the message there. Um, mm-hmm. Any other thoughts about Shakar on this one? I I would just like to say that it was a great performance as always. Um, yes, because you know. Jakar, being under all that makeup, we are constantly, constantly wowed by the fact that uh, Andreas Katsoulis is able to emote through all of that. And he does it again. His his semi poutiness at, uh, at 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 having to to sort of deal with all of this and his his anger at first when he finds out that it's gone. And just all of it is is wonderful. And I, I love this episode in part because in a great part because of, of the wonderful Jakar moments we get. Yeah. And he and he and Marshall Teague play off against each other so well. 
they really just the way they go mm-hmm. back and forth um just really really had my attention for every scene that they were working together yeah yep. so this is the second episode of babylon 5 that john copeland producer has directed he directed endgame which was the next to last episode of season four and you know i he's he doesn't have a lot of director credits to his name i mean he's been uh he's been a producer uh as a matter of fact his only director credits are to babylon 5 and a babylon 5 related series that i am not mentioning by name because i <laughs> doubt it's a spoiler but i'm going to treat it like a spoiler anyway <laughs> so not a, he i imagine that he had a certain amount of help but for uh inexperienced director the camera work the blocking and tackling the performances it all holds together really well not to mention the amount of special effects you know with another entire planet and you know different sets from the usual sets I, i feel like he really you know had an awful lot on his plate and it came out pretty great yeah um it's a well this was one of my favorite episodes in a while and it's not a pivot it's not a pivotal wham 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 it's so obvious that this is a big heavy arc episode kind of moment it's just a really well structured well written well performed episode that's coming after a plot arc that while i can i came out of the telepath stuff uh, more positively than i was expecting um it's still problematic in some respects it still doesn't get it doesn't quite stick the landing where when it needs to this is just a straight up great babylon 5 story very solid very agreed thank you to all concerned (laughs) we appreciate you we also appreciate our listeners so much that we're going to tell you a little bit of a secret next week's episode is going to be very different (laughs) Let me tell you how it's going to be different. We're following the Lurker's Guide Master episode list, uh, and it was originally flipped with this episode. Next episode is Day of the Dead, and this is an episode that was not written by J. Michael Straczynski. This episode... The first in a long time. First in a long time. First since the tail end of season two. And it's a writer that JMS was hounding to get on the show for ages. And he finally wore Neil Gaiman down. Yay! This is Neil Gaiman's (laughs) American television debut. I do believe he did Neverwhere before this. Maybe not. Let's... But, um... But that wasn't American anyway. But so. that wasn't American. Uh, right. But yeah, this is an episode that's actually not written by J. Michael Straczynski. And we will see how well it fits in uh, in the Babylon 5 Uber. Is it going to be the doctor's wife or is it going to be Nightmare in Silver? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? But that'll be next time on the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Hey, you can find us on the web at b5audioguide.com. We're on Twitter at b5audioguide. We are so grateful to you for listening to us for 100 episodes plus a couple of extras here and there. Remember back in the old days, back when I did goofy sound, goofy song parodies? Weren't those special times back then? <laughs> We're coming up 
closer and closer to the end of Babylon 5. We're glad that you're with us. Please check out the chat threads about this episode and any other episode. And if you want to remain unspoiled for the remainder of Babylon 5 and its spinoffs, then it's time for you to take your leave of us because we're going through a jump gate right now. And welcome back to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, where poor Londo, it's only going to get worse from here, of course. <laughs> Uh, and that's the first thing I wanted to observe is that this decision to freeze Londo out, it's – we know where this is all going to wind up. Um, but our core group knows that somebody is involved with Centauri Prime and that Londo is probably not a part of it. He is probably on the side of the angels for this thing, which is an unfamiliar place for him to be. And yet, when Centauri Prime finally gets fingered as being responsible for all this stuff, Londo's going to pay the cost, and Centauri Prime's going to pay the cost, and once more, there is nothing that they can really do about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to not think like, what if they had chosen differently in this episode? Would would they have been able to make things play out differently? Would Londo have, have been able to to take some sort of action that wouldn't have gotten himself killed, that, but that would have at least shown the alliance that that it's not Centauri Prime itself that is, you know, the bad guys. It's it's the Drock, and and you know, it's it's useless to to think those kinds of thoughts. But that is that is what I had going through my head as as I was watching this and watching the discussion as to whether or not to to tell Londo. Like you know, I still can't answer your question about whether it was the right decision or not. I don't think that there's any evidence that it would have necessarily gone better if if they would have told him here. But it's still just a tough decision. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's uh, a fair point that Jakar makes that, you know, if they tell Londo about this and Londo's not involved, Londo is, you know, going to like go go in guns blazing, trying to figure out what's going on uh, to try and save uh, save the planet from whatever faction is doing this. And personally, I feel like it would have probably accelerated what happens that, you know, the Drock would have come after him sooner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, as, as you say, we'll never know. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, we still don't know officially uh, that this is the Drock that are responsible for this. We know it's some creepy, scaly-looking dudes. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, we, we will get that. So I, it, it's it's hard to remind myself what we're supposed to know and what we're yeah and, and yeah. what we're benefiting from. Um, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. Well, it's it's never going to get better for Alondo. This is as good as he has it, you know, just jauntily tossing back the button to Garibaldi, you know. Mm -hmm. It's never going to be any better for him. That's tragic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is tragic. It's not, it's also going to get worse before it gets better for Garibaldi. Um, Sleeping through important messages is going to be a thing for Michael Garibaldi until (laughs) uh, Lise returns to the show and helps him dry out. Yeah, which Stephen, again, was like, we still haven't heard anything about his lady, have we? And I was like, nope. <laughs> have not. Yeah. Um, any hints, uh, any thoughts about Garibaldi's future as referenced in this episode? 
I mean, you know, you know, as of this episode, you know, all we can see is that uh, he's he's that he's beginning to lose it, and he's beginning to lose it in important ways. We you know loses a you know a witness, his friend gets killed. Um, you know, that's only going to serve to make him drink more. His failures are going to exacerbate uh, the problems. Uh, of the relapse and at this point you know all we can do is wonder you know who is it you know who, who's going to realize what's going on is it you know is, is it zach is it steven is it you know not going to come to a head until lee's comes back so mm-hmm. uh talon has every confidence that jakar can manage his let's just call it his followers and uh, promises that if, you know, if Jakar becomes bigger than his message, then that's okay. Talon will just kill him. That's, you know, it's, it's what it does. <laughs> uh, Good point. Like, Good thank you. Thank you. Thank, thanks. Uh, that's, that's really reassuring. Uh, but it isn't going to work out. There's going to be a combination of uh, Jakar sort of being a flashpoint and to a certain extent the Kari sort of ignoring him as well. And, um, uh, pairing up with the Drazi and the rest of the Alliance for retribution on Centauri Prime. So, uh, nice optimistic beginning for Jakar, but in the end, he and he, he's just going to take Lita and uh, fly off in the space coop and see the sights and let the rest of the <laughs> galaxy just sort of calm down without him for a bit, which is mm-hmm. a pity. Yeah. And on the other hand, you know, we have, you know, Talon reintroduced and he's going to he's going to end up being, you know, one of that line of people waving goodbye to Sheridan at the very end because he he is now the Mm -hmm. Narn. He will become the Narn ambassador. Yes. And that's the last point that I wanted to mention in spoiler space. You know, Franklin's departure, you know, um, Lanier left at the beginning of the uh, season, although he will be back for the back half of this season for the most part. Um, But you know, all this is the real moment where I'm like, Babylon Five is on the verge of ending. Um, you start seeding where all of the characters are going to wind up going after graduation, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, and not only the ones who are leaving, but you know the ones who are going to take their place. Yeah, um, because yeah. we've we've had Zach step up to be um, the new security chief for you know a season now. Um, we've seen um the actress if i remember correctly who will wind up taking uh steven's place in med lab yep um and of course lockley is here to take sheridan's place uh so we have you know all of these new characters you know if not brand new at least they're they're being sort of brought back to um to finalize the transition yeah um i was having a moment during the middle of this very conversation where i was like you know one of the things that Babylon 5's fifth season has going against it is that it does not build up towards a great triumph. Season 4 is your classic, hooray, we beat the bad guys kind of big damn heroes ending. And then mm-hmm. season 5 is sort of a boy governing is messy kind of thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a world building kind of story kind of thing. And it's just not a big dramatic triumphant ending kind of thing that you were looking for and and you've just made me remember that what babylon 5's fifth season is building toward and it's the most indelible moment of the season and one of the most indelible moments of the entire show is that slow panning across of 
all of these characters who are replacing other characters and that this just powerful life goes on moment Mm -hmm. and message. Mm -hmm. And And that's what JMS wanted to do from the very beginning. Uh, When he created this story arc, he wanted a big, huge peak of action in season three and then some, um, you know, fallout action in season four. And but, you know, season five was, you know, as you said, the aftermath is messy and all too often stories end on the high note and don't explore what happens next. Uh, And JMS, as you said, found this balance between all of the things that fall apart against the fact that the things that we love may not have the same faces, but are going to continue. I'm going to be a weepy mess when we get to that lineup, I'm just saying. You Mm -hmm. and me both. Yep. So say we all. Uh, Mm -hmm. Any other bits uh, about the that belong in spoiler space before we take our leave? Not for me. I think I'm done. So next time, Babylon 5 takes a deep, deep Dive into magic realism. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm getting the feeling that we're going to have some fun discussion on this one. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen it. I've got the script book hanging around somewhere. Um, uh, so I I remember enjoying it at the time. I remember feeling that it didn't quite fit. Uh and now that we're watching with our more analytical brains because we have to do a podcast the next time, I have no idea how I'm going to react to Day of the Dead. Yeah, same here. It's It's been a while. But that'll be next time. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's as my memory of it is that it's a really good episode of a very different show. <laughs> that may well be, and that may well be a challenge for our control group. We will find out. <laughs> Let's let's put everybody in suspense. How will Stephen Shapansky react to <laughs> Day of the Dead? You can find out next time on the audio guide to Babylon 5. Thank you so much for listening. Happy 100th episode. This is Chip and Durham. Erica and Edmonton. And Shannon and Durham. We will talk to you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.